Let me ask you a very important question today. What time is our lunch? That's not the important question I'm asking. But anyway, we have a great lunch. Let me ask you again. What was the most important event in history? Which historical event has been most important and most impacting to entire humanity? What historical happening affects so much that each one of us should definitely review and seriously reflect on? You know, I googled that question and Google spit out some of the important events in human history. Some say American Revolution. British, I don't think they will agree. Some say Protestant Reformation. I don't think Roman Catholics will like that. Some say tearing down the uh, Berlin Walls. Russians definitely don't have a, they, they resent that. World War I and World War II. Many Asians and Africans, they say, you Westerners, you ruined the world, and why do you call the World War I and II? In the Gutenberg printing press, I know South Korean, I mean, Korean Buddhist said, before that, 100 years before, Koreans printed a Buddhist scripture. Some say Magna Carta, poor people say it's all rich people's game. Some say discovery of America, Native Americans, they say we rather not be discovered. So, there, these are the, all the famous events, important events in history, but according to the Bible, the most important event in history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Easter is all about. That's why you and I are here today. Speaking of a resurrection, we are naturally fascinated with the idea of a resurrection. People love comeback story. Regardless of one's religious affiliation, whether you are Christian or not, it doesn't matter. Resurrection is a universal human yearning. People love comeback story. Movies, sports, everything. For instance, do you remember uh, James Bond movie Skyfall? Scene where uh, the villain Silva captured James Bond and then showing him off that uh, what his computer system is uh, capable of. And James Bond was not impressed and he kind of retorted that, well, everybody needs hobby. And then Silva was offended and then asked him, what is yours? And Bond said, resurrection. And that's when, you know, light came to my mind. Said, this, is, this is why we love James Bond movie. Because it's a story of a resurrection. Every James Bond movie, he almost dies, but always come back. Right? Some of us are eagerly waiting for the Avengers series. The end game. Let me spoil you. That's the how they're going to just spin it out. The Hollywood version of a pseudo-scientific version of a resurrection. My guess is the last movie, what is that, the Ant-Man and the Wasp Woman? You know, the quantum time lift? Yeah, that's, you know, that's how they will, they will, they will create the resurrection. All the, you know, hero, the, the Avengers that, that, that died, they will come back. But speaking of comeback, I was, you know, we were all fascinated last week about the comeback of a Tiger Wood in the Master. That was truly, it was one of the greatest comeback in 
sports history. He fell out of a top thousand golfers. He used to be top one. People used to nickname him number one, but he was out of thousand. His career was as good as that. And for 11 years, he didn't win a single major tournament. And the last Sunday, he won fifth green jacket and master. And I have a picture to prove how people were fascinated. <laughs> this is our church members. During the fellowship, I always encourage them and go and talk to newcomers. Because we, for people to visit Forest Church is a miracle. We don't have a building. We don't have a even sign out there. They found somehow founders in the internet and through friends' mouths. So welcome them. And during the welcoming time, they are all fascinated with the comeback of a Tiger Woods. And then I honestly, I, I checked the people's response to Tiger's you know, comeback. And then, you know, people comparing once again Tiger Woods to Jack Nicholas, who is greater? And uh, I read, I read uh, some of the discussion board. One guy said, people tend to admire more those who come back from the brink than someone like Jack Nicholas who was a model golfer, family man, as straight as an arrow. So it's definitely saying that Jack Nicholas is a greater than Tiger Woods. And then somebody immediately responded to that one, was that Jack Nicholas enjoyed the pinnacle of his career in a different age, before the internet, before 24-hour news, before when celebrities was protected. Tiger has lived his life in a media storm. Perhaps Tiger is to be admired more than Jack Nicholas because he's been to hell and not just come back from it, but triumphed. You know, when that discussion board said, Tiger has been to hell, it kind of caught my attention because that's a very familiar expression. We describe the audio and journey that people who made come back. But that's an old figure of a speech. When it comes to Jesus Christ coming, you know, coming back from hell, it's not a figure of speech. It's a fact. You heard the three brothers and sisters who baptized in their Apostles' Creed. They say Jesus, was, Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day, he, I mean, he went to the dead. Actually, our original text is went to hell. He went to the destiny of a destination of a sinners to the end, and God raised him. So, resurrection is a real deal. Resurrection of Jesus Christ, if that's a real historical event, it leads us to many, many other important questions. First of all, who is he? Because no human being ever came back from death, as we will see soon. It's not a temporary death, it was a complete death. And then, of course, the Bible says he is son of God. Then next question we must ask, then why in the world son of God or divine being died on that cross? And then another question, if he is alive, where is it now? And most importantly, we need to ask, if a resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact, what am I supposed to do? 
What am I supposed to do with my life? All these questions is resurrection of Jesus is raising for us. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is a key event of all important events in history. This is a pinnacle of a human history and the Bible history. And this, that's why we cannot just think about, I really thank, you know, uh, uh, thank God for uh, Danny's prayer that we will not just, uh, you know, celebrate the Easter one day and, uh, you know, forget. The meaning and impact of Easter is so big, it demands our full attention and thorough reflection that I decide to share this meaning of Easter message in the next three weeks, including today, through the 1st Corinthians chapter 15. And let me tell you a little bit about 1st Corinthians chapter 15. This is called the resurrection chapter. Paul wrote some of the, more, some of the memorable uh, 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 chapters in the Bible. Some of them we know that 1st Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter and quoted in many weddings. For me, this is the chapter that we need to remember about Apostle Paul. Revel, I mean, the first Corinthians chapter 15, resurrection chapter. Here, according to many New Testament scholars, we see the example of a Paul's best argument. And for this tour de force, Paul used all kinds of rhetorical devices in his, in his, in his, in him, such as examples, analogies, logical consequences, rhetorical questions, and more. So today, we will see the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then we will think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 11. Let me read it for you. Now, brothers and sisters, anytime Paul starts a, a, a letter, not brothers and sisters, that means attention, please. It's called the excordium in Latin. means I want to say something special. You pay attention. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken, for, taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance. Once again, first importance means this is the most important thing in the Bible. That Christ died for our sin according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to the more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of apostles and do not even deserve to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. By the way, receiving grace of God makes you 
more energetic than anything else. Some people say once you receive saving grace, you're set for good. No, you're set for real work, real human life, exciting life ahead of you. Verse 11, whether then it is I or they, that is what we preach, this is what we believe. Today, my Easter message has two main points. One, resurrection of Jesus Christ is promised. Two, resurrection of Jesus Christ is proven. But before I get to these two main points, I will need to share with you the perils, perils, dangers of not understanding resurrection of Jesus Christ properly. Paul wrote this letter to Corinthians. Who are Corinthians? We studied about the Corinthians last fall in our church. Do you remember? They were not, they were not the exemplary Christians. They are the most troubled and troublemaking, struggling Christians in the New Testament. For instance, they had an internal faction. They are, in the church there was infighting. Can you imagine, you know, we have infighting in our church. And then members suing each other for financial matter. They taking each other to the court. And they, there was also incestuous relationship. There was an incest in Christian family in the church. And there, when it comes to worship, it was a chaotic. Some people brag about their spiritual gift of tongues and the you know, prophecy and chaotic. The worship was not in, in order. And then what about the, the communion? The Lord's Supper was a selfishly observed that some rich people ate all and poor people like a slave, they couldn't have a bite. Why were the Corinthian church was so troubled? Because they forgot and misunderstood the original gospel of Paul. Especially, they became a trouble troublemakers because they are mis they misunderstood the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you look at the verse 12, Paul actually say, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of the Corinthians, they did not believe in resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then how did they believe in the gospel? Because the resurrection is a core of the gospel. They interpreted resurrection of Jesus Christ typical Hellenistic way. For instance, first time when Paul preached the risen Christ in Athens in Acts chapter 17, you know what the Athenians or the city that known for the philosophy, the Greeks responded. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Some of, some of them sneered. They were skeptical. They actually laughed at them, laughed at Paul. Why? Greeks, they have this dualistic thinking that anything physical is inferior. Only good is a spiritual. It's called the Greek dualism. Platonism is a famous example of that. So for instance, when Socrates was uh, dying, you know how he was falsely accused and then he was taking a, a cup of a poison. He was uh, consoled by his friends and uh, he said, well, at least I welcome death because 
it will release my soul and spirit from this prison of a body. So Greeks, they actually not afraid of death. Death is actually a welcome experience because you lived well, you will go to a spiritual realm. And you are no longer bothered by this bodily limitation. You know the word here, the 1 Corinthians 15, 12, the resurrection of the dead, literally it means rising of corpse. Literally means rising of corpse, dead bodies. Greeks, they thought resurrection, bodily resurrection, like we see zombies. For them, it's not an exciting story. It's like, ooh, why in the world you get the body, that trouble, trouble your body again? So, what happened was the Corinthians, they are reinventing gospel in their cultural experience. As a result of that, they're interpreting everything in their taste, and all kinds of trouble happen. And Paul is saying that, you have to remember what I preached you from the beginning. And then Paul gave a warning, verse 2, otherwise you have believed in vain. Actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it starts with this, this, this phrase, that are in vain. Look at the verse 58, the last verse. Therefore, my brothers, dear brothers and sisters, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It starts with not in vain and ends with not in vain. And this is called, rhetorical device called, inclusio. So Paul is basically saying this. If you don't understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ biblically and clearly, you cannot be fruitful. Your Christian life will be frustrating. But if you understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it will not be a gain. You will gain, it will not be a vain, but you will gain everything. So today, Paul goes back to the gospel. And he said, this is what we believe. This is where we stand. And this is a proven truth. So, first point. Crucifixion and resurrection is a promise. Look at the verse 3. Paul said, for what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance. You know this expression, what I received and what I pass on to you? This is a well-known phrase among the Jewish people. In the Latin word for pass on, pass on is a traditio, tradere or traditio, from which we get English word trade. You know, trade means exchanging, right? And also we get the English word tradition. And actually, so once again, I want to say this a tradition. When you hear the word tradition, many of us think it's a kind of boring, old. Would you like to be called traditional guy? Oh. He is a, such a traditional guy. We immediately think old, boring, you know, archaic. Ancient people, nothing is more important than tradition. Because a tradition is a serious matter. What you receive, the previous tradition, you don't just pass on. You seriously think and you pass on. For instance, the word tradere, 
from which we also got another word traitor. Because during the early church, when Roman, Romans persecuted the Christian and they forced the Christian to acknowledge Caesar is the Lord before they go to worship Christ as the Lord, all Christian leaders as a symbolism of about respecting Caesar as the Lord of the Roman Empire, they supposed to hand it over to the scripture to Roman official. And when Roman official received the scripture, and they hand it back, they call the trade tra traitor. That's a trade. That's a trade. That's a tradition. You know, tradition, another one. When Judas Iscariot handed over to Jesus, the word handed over Jesus to the Jews, that was a tradition. You know, betraying your teacher who loved you for three years, it's not easy. So tradition is a serious and a hard task. That's what Paul is saying. What I gave to you is not my invention. This is a the, the matter of a first importance. And then Paul gave the full statement about the gospel. And this is very valuable because this is not a Paul's word. This is a common gospel of the New Testament. So if you look at it, there's a full statement. Each one of them starts with a Greek phrase words, hati, which means death. So look at it. That Christ died for our sin according to scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to scripture. That he appeared to Cephas and others. That, 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 that for that, that's the four articles of a faith in New Testament church. This is what they confessed. First of all, he said, the Christ died for our sin according to scripture. That means Christ's death was not accidental. He was not a victim of a political injustice. Even though there was an injustice and cruelty, it was God's providence that Christ died for our salvation. Because Isaiah 53, 6 said, We are all like a sheep have gone astray. Each one of us was turned our own way, but Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. And then express all the Christ's suffering. And verse 9 said, He was assigned in a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. You know, when Jesus died, they initially was going to bury him or burn his body just like other criminals. But the Joseph of Arimathea, according to the Gospels, he was a hidden disciple, closet disciple. On that day, he was touched by Christ's sacrifice. He came out and they gave me his body. I want to lay him my brand new tomb that I prepare for my family. And this was fulfilled. He was buried. That means Jesus was truly dead. You know, some people say resurrection would never happen. He was actually resuscitation. He just, you know, looks like he's dead. But in the pool of the you know, tomb, somehow he gained the consciousness and then he came back. So, yeah, he was crucified, but, you know, it's not a res resurrection, it's a resuscitation. You know, people who kill Jesus, they are professional executioners. They don't make a mistake like that. If you read the gospel, when Pontius Pilate heard that Christ was dead, he said, that, he said, that early? Usually take a few days, he dies so soon. He want to make sure. 
And usually they break the leg of the, whoever crucified, they could not run away. But in case of Christ, they spear, they put the spear on his side. And what came out? Not the blood, but the water. By that means a bodily liquid. That means all blood was already drained. When you lose that much blood, you cannot come back from that. And then, once again, the key is on the third day he was raised. Why does he mention on the, why does he mention on the third day, early Christians? Third day means completely dead, once again. In Jewish tradition, maybe first couple days, people, people can come back from, from the temporary death, but after third day, game is over. And according to Hosea chapter 6, this is what God promised to Israel. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. That means on third day, God will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. And even before his death, Christ said in the Matthew, Matthew 12, verse 39, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, I will give them nothing but the sign of a prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, what Bible tells us, Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and he rose from the dead after three days. It's all predicted. Do you know anybody whose life was predicted 700 years before their birth? Buddha, Mohammed, anybody, Confucius, you name it. Nobody in human history, their birth and life and death was predicted in a such an incredible detail like Jesus Christ. At the end, the resurrection proved that he is not just a man. He is a son of God, God incarnate for all of us. Now let me go to the second point. Then Paul goes to the hardcore of his, his, his passage today. His message today. Verse 5 to 8. Paul used the word four times. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared. And he, he is enlisting the different eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And it's worth our time to look at it. According to the Bible, actually, Jesus appeared to 10 different times after resurrection. But here we will see a little different, you know, here at least we see. First of all, he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is the uh, Arabic pronunciation of Peter. And about Jesus' appearance to Peter, I love this story. If you look at the Mark chapter 6, 16, 7, the angel of the Lord announced the resurrection of Jesus to the woman who came to anoint Jesus' body in the tomb, said this, Go, tell his disciples, and who? Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Why? Why doesn't you know, angel say, just tell the disciples? Because Peter is one of the disciples. Why does the angel specify Peter? What is he trying to say? What is God trying to say? 
I love Bible verse like this. God is telling through angels to woman, make sure that Peter get this news of resurrection. Why? Look at the John chapter 21, verse 3. This is after Peter met already risen Christ a couple times. Peter said, I'm going out to fish. In, he was in Galilee. Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they all went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. You know the rest of the story. Jesus, risen Christ said, throw your net on the side. And they caught a lot of fish. And they had a fish breakfast with Jesus. Now, if you met somebody just was completely dead and the reason from the grave, would you just go to fishing? I mean, if you somehow met a real Avenger, one of the Avengers, like a Thor, not in movie screen, but in your life, in your, you know, in your somehow supermarket, somehow the Thor was a real Thor is there with a, his, uh, uh, what is that, the accent, you know, armor, and then say, there, are you doing? You know, when you see the Thor, would you just say, ah, I saw you, and then, you know, go? You're going to say that this is a real thing, right? How can Peter just go to fishing? Why? Even though he knew that Jesus is risen from the dead, Peter was a deeply ashamed by his failure to follow Christ. He's a, he's a cowardly denial of Christ that he was imprisoned by the shame. And then Jesus came and asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he asked that question exactly three times and then restored Peter. I don't know. I, every time I read that story, I know that Jesus loves not just the whole, you know, whole humanity, but he loves each one of us where we are, as I am. And then second person that Jesus appeared was that of 500 people, 500 of our brothers and sisters at once. And then Paul said a very interesting thing. Most of them are still living. And though some have fallen asleep, some have fallen asleep, those who gave their life for Christ. That's the expression. And those, most of them are still living. You know what Paul is saying? You Corinthians, you don't believe me? Ask Peter. Ask some of these people. My witnesses' integrity is there. They will tell you. Since you don't believe me, you don't respect me much, go get yourself the correct information. Paul is daring them to check whether resurrection is a historical concrete fact or not. And then Paul goes to the third person that Jesus appeared. That is James. Paul, Jesus appeared to James. Who is this James? Jesus' half-brother. Another son of Mary and Joseph. Full biological son of Mary and Joseph. And the James, about the James, do you know how Jesus' family responded to Jesus during his public ministry? Jesus said, Matthew 13, 57, that a prophet is not without honor, except his hometown and his own household. That means Jesus said, I was respected everybody except my hometown, Nazareth, and my, my own family. And then later we find Mark chapter 3, when Jesus entered the uh, house, 
a crowd gathered, and verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus' own family thought he got this messianic delusion and said, oh, son, please, oh, brother, come home. They tried to. They are about to send him to a mental institution. And then other time in, in the Mark chapter 3 later when disciples said, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you? Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of God, my brother, uh, does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And then you, when you come to John chapter 7, the skepticism of Jesus' family, own family, is more clear than ever. Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciple there may see the works you do. And no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, since you are doing all the things. Show yourself to the world. And John said, verse 5, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Interesting thing, they saw Jesus' miracle. And they are not convinced. Isn't that amazing? That's, they said, hey, we see your miracle. We see your healing. Why don't you go do it in big in Jerusalem? And then what happened? And Jesus went to Jerusalem, was crucified. When Jesus was, when your older brother is dying, it is by Jewish custom you're supposed to be there. Because mom is there. You have to, have to take care of your mom, at least to console your mom. None of Jesus' brother was there except John. And John was who Jesus has to take care of my mother. Why? They said, my brother finally that a false, you know, messianic delusion got him to death. Why in the world I'll be, you know, if they killed me? They all ran away. And then what happened? After resurrection, Jesus appeared to his own family. Mary and James. And James became a leader of a Jerusalem church. Peter was not the leader of Jerusalem church. James was a leader of Jerusalem church. His nickname, according to early church tradition, was James the Just. He is the author of the letter of James in the New Testament. He is the one who prays so much. His nickname, another nickname was the camel's knee because he bended knee to pray so much that it became like a, you know, I don't know what the camel's knee is, like a you know, thick bones. And uh, according to Josephus, the first century Jewish, uh, Jewish historian, he was stoned to death. Another Christian, first century Christian, Clement of Rome said they put him on the pin of top of the temple of Jerusalem and they toppled him. They pushed him down. When he fell, he was still alive. They stoned him to death. James, he grew up with Jesus. He thought his older brother is a nice brother. Odd. Later he said, too spiritual, too church involved. And later he found, man alive. He's now he's more than my brother. He's son of God. And that's a James. And the last person Paul mentioned in his letter is a Paul. He said, last of all, he appeared to me also, one who abnormally born. This word abnormally born 
literally means aborted one. This is expression aborted. Back then, many children were aborted. How do they avoid? They don't like. They don't have a medical clinic like today. The way they avoid is very simple. When baby was born, they just take the baby and they leave baby in the public market, and they usually, you know, unwanted baby. That's how they did. So it's they are aborted means they are not dead. They are born, but they are aborted from their family, and then usually, the if a girl, the prostitute, prostitution, you know, owners. Or as a boy, some people take for the, to be a slave or gladiator. That's the expression Paul said. I was abnormally born. Of course he was born in the very faithful, solid Jewish family. This expression Paul is saying is this. By that he means this. Scholars think of two things. One is Paul is talking about his physical you know, ugliness. Do you know, Corinthians didn't respect Paul. And they said things like the, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in his person, he's, impress, he's, not, he's, he's unimpressive, and the speaking ability is not that great. Just his letters are great. Everything else is good, not good. And people think uh, Paul was actually ugly, ugly, ugly. So, so, some people thought that Paul was explaining about, the, you know, my ugliness came from my birth defect kind of things. Paul may be alluding that, but I think what Paul is actually meant is this. When Paul became a Christian, he was disowned by his family. We don't see Paul's family mentioned in his letters much. If a Paul, and Paul said in the Romans 9, I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul said, for the salvation of my own family and my own people, and especially my own family, I will go to hell. That's how much he wants to save his family. But we don't see his family names much in the, his letters. Why? His family thought, you became one of those crazy followers of Jesus. You became a, that follower, disciple of the crazy Galilean Messiah. You're out of the family. So Paul was aborted by his own family. And Paul here is saying this. Though I'm aborted, I was rescued by King of Kings and Lord of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? When babies are aborted, all those uh, you know, uh, questionable characters come and take the baby. In Paul's case, King of Kings and Lord of Lords adopted him and called him to be apostle. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what I, who I am. And because of that grace, even though I'm a list of the apostles, I'm not even called to be apostle, but I give my life and everything for Christ because Christ gave all for me. And this is, who I, this is what I preach. This is what I am. This is what I, call, what I called you to be. That's what Jesus, Paul is saying today. Let me conclude. Do you know the most important event in your life? That is to meet risen Christ. Let me tell you, 
I'm a little older than most of you here. I live pretty old, yeah. And I had a, you know, up and down. I have a great fit too. I remember, you know, some of great fit is when Jamie said, okay, I'll marry you. You know, those of you know our story, it was, you know, I said, really? Actually, I couldn't believe it. Really, I thought she was crazy. Because we dated her just one day and I proposed and she said yes. And, uh, you know, and when my children was born, I was so happy, you know. My parents, you know, and then I remember that uh, after my oral defense, I was, after the oral defense, I'm waiting and my professors came in. Dr. Kim, congratulations. That eight years of my academic odyssey ended. I'm out of Waco. I'm sorry, now Waco is a beautiful place. That's not point. I have a lot of great memories and great ecstasy, ecstatic moments in life. Starting a forest is one of them. Baptized, you know, all this is wonderful. Some of you coming to Christ is wonderful. Yes, this is all grace of God, but nothing is greater than I met Jesus Christ and this is a living reality every single day. You know, this Lent season was a very special. I pray for several people. Amazingly, God answered. And some of, us, some of you join my prayers. And we pray. And all this, you know, we will hear more testimony, baptismal testimony, one in next two Sundays. And wait how God answered our prayer and turn our heart to him. Dear brothers and sisters, though disciples of Christ in the first century, they met Jesus face to face. That doesn't mean they are blessed and we are not. Jesus said, John chapter 20, 29, that blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Why? If you see and believe Jesus, your faith is limited by sight. But when you believe, when without seeing you believe, your faith is unlimited by your sensory experience. Even though we don't see Jesus face to face, most of us here, but we can still see him through faith. And when you encounter Christ through the faith, the resurrection reality is still present. It will change your life. It will raise you from whatever deadly darkness, the shame and stinkiness of sin that you, you struggle and hate. God will deliver you. This is the word of God. Let's pray.